Every week, Sound Body starts out with a welcome to this program of information on health topics and ideas that can help you live life to its fullest. So it seems like a no-brainer to look for material in a magazine that says it offers no gimmicks, no hype health and fitness, and has the stated mission of empowering people to become their healthiest, happiest, most authentic selves, and supporting a balanced, deeply satisfying way of life. Phew! That does actually seem like some hype to me, but I guess I can be forgiving and give them a break. Experience Life magazine has been around since 2001 and comes out 10 times a year. We today are going to read from the January-February 2021 issue and start with a feature piece titled The End of Fear, written by Courtney Helgo, that purports to tell us how to move beyond what scares you. The beautiful photo attached to the article doesn't look very scary to me, but if you're scared of forests with a lot of moss on the ground, I guess it would be scary. So, why are you scared? When you feel fear, the answer to that question usually seems obvious. Your heart is pounding because you're on your way to a job interview, or you just learned you're expecting your first child. Perhaps you're about to climb into an airplane that's so small you have to tilt your head to get into your seat. Or there's a global viral pandemic that's ongoing. We typically assume our fears are generated by this or that situation. We feel certain that if we could just change the circumstances, or better yet, if some higher power would kindly rearrange them for us, we would feel better. Yet according to psychotherapist Richard Schaub, PhD, such assumptions not only ignore the real source of our discomfort, they can actually feed our anxieties. In The End of Fear, A Spiritual Path for Realists, which Schaub co-wrote with his wife, Bonnie Galino Schaub, RNMS, he suggests that instead of believing our fear is a sign that circumstances need to change, we can reframe it as the result of our innate love of life. Schaub believes that fear is triggered in part because we love life so much. We don't want to lose it, and this makes us hypervigilant about threats a vigilance that often manifests as outsized, anxious reactions, like lashing out or shutting down. Such reactions may work to keep us alive in dire circumstances, precisely what the survival instinct is designed to do, but day to day these protective responses can diminish the quality of our lives and relationships. Until we realize that our fears originate in our own awareness of inevitable change and loss, Schaub writes, we blame them on causes outside of us, convinced that other people, places, and things are making us feel vulnerable and threatened. He offers case studies to show how efforts to avoid our mortality, or, as he regularly refers to it, our vulnerability, ultimately backfire. A successful businessman is unhinged by a midlife crisis as he begins to sense that no amount of material success will keep him alive forever. A woman who has long found comfort in her faith discovers it isn't enough to protect her loved ones from harm. Conversely, her husband, who had always taken refuge in his rational skepticism, finds that logic fails him when he's faced with loss and change. 
None of these very human attempts to handle fear, materialism, blind faith, entrenched skepticism, will provide the promised peace, Schaub believes. This is because each one relies on the idea that loss and death can, with the right formula, be cheated. Does accepting vulnerability doom us to a life shrouded in a gloomy awareness that this is all going to end anyway? Absolutely not, says Schaub. In fact, if we can more accurately identify the real causes of our fear, it can help relieve us of the stressful experience of repressing our feelings and allow us to become considerably more at ease. I consider fear to be absolutely normal and something to be respected, so I don't pathologize it at all, Schaub says. It doesn't become a disorder for me. I think there's a potential in fear to get to something good. It's not like you just have to tolerate fear. You can find a skillful way to work with it, because it is, it exists, and it isn't going away. He teaches simple methods to help quiet the mind and accept vulnerability as a natural state. They include taking a walk around the block while looking carefully at everyone through the lens of vulnerability. Understanding that each person you see is just as susceptible to loss, change, and death as you are. This exercise has become altogether more salient during the coronavirus pandemic. Another involves turning toward fear with affection and simply thanking it for trying to protect you and keep you living this life, one that apparently you really love. This fundamental desire for one's own life can be a wonderful thing to notice, and it can wake us up to the present moment like nothing else. Surrender is an act of decision, Schaub writes, an act of strength and courage with serenity as its reward. Ultimately, cultivating an appreciation for our vulnerability teaches us that life can be enjoyed even if it can't be controlled or prolonged forever. This attitude can also keep us from taking the people we love and even the people we don't like for granted, since we don't know how long they'll be around. Finally, it allows us to use fear, which usually springs up during moments of uncertainty, as an invitation to become curious instead of worried. We believe that something bad or difficult is going to happen, but really it's all unknown, Schaub concludes. There's a lot of unnecessary suffering about what might happen. When we understand the nature of fear Schaub maintains, we can learn how to use it to wake ourselves up to a deeper love for life. And this is a column which is an interview with Richard Schaub. Wisdom from psychotherapist Richard Schaub, PhD, on the connection between fear and vulnerability and how embracing mortality can bring relief. Experience life. Most of us prefer to avoid things that scare us. How did you become interested in approaching fear and exploring it professionally? Richard Schaub. I would say it was an awareness of my own nervousness and tendency to worry. I saw a lot of fear in people around me as well. In my first job out of college, I was a caseworker, working with people who were addicted to heroin, and I saw that when they were in recovery, these were just sensitive people overwhelmed by the world. They weren't the tough criminals they seemed to be on the outside. 
I had the sense that the people who appeared to be unafraid were really masking how they felt. E.L. In the end of fear, you suggest that all fear is an indication of our underlying, underlying vulnerability. Is there a difference between fear and vulnerability? R.S. This is not an unusual confusion because people think of vulnerability as a feeling. And it is a feeling, but it's also more than that. Vulnerability is our situation. It is a natural state, our human condition. We are vulnerable beings, period. We might think we're solid and fine, but something could change on a dime. After this interview, for example, you or I could get a phone call with bad news. So, that vulnerability is our human condition, and fear is the result of the fact that we are, in fact, vulnerable. E.L. What are the most harmful reactions to fear? R.S. All destructive fear reactions can be categorized as expressions of three natural instincts, fight, flight, and freeze. In my mind, the most destructive reaction is fight. There's a lot of anger that arises over experiences that stimulate our vulnerability. When people are not consciously aware that what they are experiencing is vulnerability, they tend to react with anger and a fight response. The fight reaction directly affects other people, and it comes out in many forms. There's violence, obviously, but there's also sarcasm, criticism, revenge, blaming. When someone acts out of flight or freeze reactions, it can be harmful to the person doing them and can be harmful to people around them, too. But the fight reaction can be the most destructive communally. E.L. Do you consider all anger to be a mask for fear? R.S. I would say 99% of it. For four years, I ran a program for adolescents at a day hospital. They were thrown out of school because they were violent or vandals or whatever, and they were classic examples of disguised fear. I mean, you could look at them and see clearly that their whole point was to look scary. But after you got to know them, it was obvious that they didn't really know what they were doing. They were just hurt, vulnerable, and protecting themselves in this way. I'm not excusing their behaviors, but it's evident to me that they were primarily fearful and responding to the world with a fight reaction as a result. E.L. Can you teach kids who are really angry to consciously accept their vulnerability? It seems like that involves a degree of maturity not associated with adolescence. R.S. I think maturity can be translated as self-awareness, and that can be cultivated at virtually any age. If you can train someone to be more aware, they become more mature. If someone can notice, and that's the key thing, the state that they're in, they have the possibility of changing it, of choosing a different response to their condition. E.L. What are some techniques you teach to help people respond to their fear more consciously? R.S. As noted, I think self-awareness is the prerequisite for everything else. That's what changes things. So how do you learn self-awareness? You learn how to stop and name the state you're in. You might simply acknowledge, I'm really angry right now. Or you might notice you are feeling nervous and frightened and ask, what am I so anxious about? 
just that moment of noticing and self-inquiry gives you the chance to do something different with what you're feeling. From that point, once you're aware, you're more capable of changing the state you're in. I think that the best way to change fear states is through clinical or practical meditation techniques, which doesn't necessarily mean sitting in a lotus position for 20 minutes. It just means lowering the degree of alarm in the system. It could be putting on your favorite music, just doing something else instead of automatically acting on the feeling inside you. Some people like mental imagery. Some people like breathing. Some people do self-talk, where they talk themselves through processing the feeling. But it's all about calming the state of alarm in the brain. Doing this for ourselves means that we are aware and we are accepting that the state we are in can be changed. E.L. You've helped clients face the fear of death by teaching them about the transpersonal aspect of themselves. Could you explain that idea? R.S. The word transpersonal and the word spiritual are used interchangeably in some circles. Transpersonal is not a very well-known word, but it means beyond the personal, beyond the personality. People become convinced that they are just a mind and a body and a personality, but we're actually much more than that. I get a lot of clients who are very ill, and they're looking for something beyond the body because they know their time in that body is limited. EL, what would an experience of the transpersonal look like? RS. It's more what it feels like. What it feels like is that temporarily you're not you. What you are is a state of awareness. You are aware of being connected to or participating in something greater than yourself. EL. And this helps calm us because we know some part of us lives on and exists beyond the fragility we feel in the moment. RS. That's right. E.L. How might accepting our vulnerability change us? R.S. The first thing that happens when people accept their vulnerability is that they become more compassionate, both toward themselves and others. This doesn't mean they automatically love everybody. It just means that they can see, wow, that person is struggling too. I think the second change happens when people begin to have more insight in the behaviors, including their own. In my book, I give the example of the business executive who's sitting down at the conference table. Usually this guy would be intimidating and motivating everybody through fear. Instead, as he starts dealing with his own fear, he just sits there and he notices how each of his managers is actually reacting to his or her own vulnerability. So, because he's accepted his own vulnerability more, he's beginning to have insight into other people, and they start to respond to him less fearfully. It changes the whole relationship. The road to accepting your vulnerability is made easier by realizing we're all in this together. There's nobody outside of this. Nobody. And there's a smaller column associated with this that's called Five Steps to Transforming Fear. And this has a person walking along a beautiful, beautiful wilderness path. There's a gorge to the left, a beautiful rocky path, and you can see plenty of 
plenty of mountains in the distance. Five steps to transforming fear. One, notice the sensation. Self-awareness is the prerequisite to everything else. When it comes to managing fear, Schaub says, if you can notice an anxious feeling before acting on it, that's the first step. Two, name the feeling. Schaub recommends identifying feelings by name like, wow, I feel nervous. This creates an opportunity for reflection and a more conscious response. Three, investigate the trigger. Ask yourself what's frightening you, Schaub says, and establish whether it's a genuine immediate threat. Four, lower the alarm. Self-soothing is a key part of moving beyond a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. So do whatever works to calm your heart rate, like listening to music or taking 10 deep breaths. Five, cultivate compassion. Remember that everyone is vulnerable to loss and change, so there's no need to judge yourself or others for being afraid. Take comfort in knowing that we're all in this together. I'm going to go on to an article titled Goodbye Sugar, and this is written by Michael Mackey, and it is under the column headline, My Turnaround. Oh, 2018, you were the best of times, you were the worst of times. That was the year I landed a groovy new gig as a magazine editor in Kansas City and took a luxurious 11-day Norwegian cruise. It was also the year I collectively felt awful physically and emotionally. Thanks to a raging sugar addiction, I had managed to gain 60 pounds. My physician was crestfallen, head in hands, he nearly admonished me. Michael, how? That takes effort. Actually, it didn't. Over the span of those 12 months, food had accidentally become mindless comfort. I wasn't tuned in to my nutrition, let alone my food intake. So, at the beginning of 2019, as a sort of Hail Mary pass to my overall well-being, I gave up sugar, and sweeteners, and starches, and gluten, for an entire year. I decided to do it for two reasons. One, because I was 150% addicted to sugar, and two, it was wreaking havoc with my health. As I look back, it probably would have been easier to give up oxygen. Given that I had evolved into a 50-year-old sugaraholic, I knew I would need guidance, so I hired a life coach slash nutritionist to hold my hand as I started my journey. She became my touchstone and subsequent lifeline to food. She armed me with counsel and what seemed like a 14-page laundry list of things I couldn't eat and a half-page leaflet of approved keto foods. With my lifelong penchant for the sweet stuff, she and I had a quiet love-hate relationship. She helped me to become hyper-mindful of what I was eating and when. I would furiously check labels and read about which foods contained obscene amounts of natural sugar. I'm looking at you, bananas. When it came to withdrawal, I figured the first week would be hell. It was, and so was the second, third, and fourth. Searing headaches, insane mood swings, and unexplainable itching were the norm up until Valentine's Day. The worst, though? One week in, my bod gave up 
and I curled up in the fetal position awaiting certain death. Don't be so dramatic, my nutritionist said. This is normal. It's known as the keto flu. My body, which was used to being fueled by sugar and carbs, was switched over to running on fat, which means reducing my carb intake forced my body to burn ketones for energy instead of glucose. She suggested that I journal about the experience. So I chronicled the good, the bad, and the ugly, including the unexpected upending rage that happened a few months in the said experiment. As the weeks became months, I was diligent in my quest to eschew sugar. Sugar. I was eating caveman-tastic meals, all meat, all veg, all the time. But as I got more entrenched in this no-sugar journey, I became disenchanted. Processed sugar is in everything, every last possible thing. That unassuming can of wasabi almonds I craved equals seven grams of sugar. Even more daunting, my cravings didn't subside until April. Mercifully, by that point, I noticed there were some interesting perks to avoiding the white stuff. Weight was falling off me, and I was down nearly 25 pounds without a substantial amount of effort. My, meanwhile, my hair was growing like a weed. Even my stylist noticed that it had become thicker and more luxurious. I was practically a sugar-free brick girl. Countless friends lambasted me throughout those first several months for trying another gimmicky attempt at weight loss. Most chided me for simply not exercising moderation. I tried to explain that losing weight was never my goal in this sugar-free endeavor. My intent was to see what it did to my health. Turns out, a smaller waistline is a nifty byproduct of not eating sugary byproducts. Who knew? Early on, my nutritionist and I made one concession. A lone packet of honey and tea or coffee, which became the difference between successfully completing this experiment and eating frosting out of the can. So what did I eat? Real talk. I ate my weight and guacamole and charcuterie, minus crackers, with pickled veggies, artisanal mustards, and overwhelmingly odiferous blue cheeses. A bacon cheeseburger, sans bun, was a near daily staple. And because sugary drinks are omnipresent, I drank 272,589 club sodas, give or take. Looking back, I probably should have invested in LaCroix stock. Six months in, typical aches and pains were nipped in the bud. The constant creaks and groans my body made subsided, especially in the morning. Working out became significantly easier. I started sleeping like a rock and popping out of bed every morning ready to tackle my day. Sugar-laden me would have required a caramel macchiato to get going. My libido saw a resurgence. The old me would always choose a cookie over nookie. I'm not 18 again, obviously, but I definitely have a bit more pep in my step. But the big unexpected winner? My skin. I hadn't had so much as one blemish blot or breakout in months. Through all of it, I kept journaling and posted the occasional blog about my experiences. I put it all out there, writing about subtle changes that were becoming routine. Things were going swimmingly until late May when my father suffered a stroke and later passed away. 
Thankfully, not one neighbor showed up with a tater tot casserole. But staying true to my sugar-free diet was a piece of cake, pun intended, compared with trying to stay sober. Dad's stroke triggered my need to drink, and at this point, I had been sober for more than three years. For over a month, I white-knuckled the urge to guzzle wine straight out of the bottle. I didn't slip, but as anyone who's in recovery can tell you, it was dicey. When doctors moved my father from the hospital to hospice, I spent a good majority of the midnight hour tearing through his house looking for wine. I didn't find any. That's what we call divine intervention. What did I learn over those 365 days? One, that I have an insane amount of willpower. And two, that my taste buds have completely changed. Even the tiniest bit of something with natural sugar, say a handful of raspberries, now tastes overwhelmingly sweet to me. So thanks, 2019. I will look back on you fondly. All jokes aside, that year proved to me that taking a leap of faith and committing to better health could help me overcome seemingly insurmountable challenges, as well as an unholy penchant for pecan pecan pie. I came, I saw, I conquered my cravings, and that's the best treat there is. Here's a short column called See It to Believe It. Exercise may slow or prevent vision loss. When a University of Virginia researcher set out to justify his sedentary lifestyle, he discovered that rising from the couch offered some eye-opening benefits. Even moderate exercise may slow or prevent vision loss. In a study using lab mice, Bradley Gelfan, Ph.D., an assistant professor at UVA's Center for Advanced Vision Science, found that exercising reduced the harmful overgrowth of blood vessels in the eyes, known to cause macular degeneration and other vision problems, by as much as 45%. Because the findings do not rely on self-reporting by study participants, Skelfen says, this study offers hard evidence from the lab for the very first time. Some 11 million Americans suffer from some form of macular degeneration, and the condition tends to emerge as we age and abandon our fitness regime. Gelfand suspects the salutary effects of exercise on the eyes may be due to increased blood flow, but he admits there's more work to be done before he's ready to recommend any solutions. We're talking about a fairly elderly population, many of whom may not be capable of conducting the type of exercise regimen that may be required to see some benefit, he says. The findings did, however, change his own thinking. I was hoping to find some reason not to exercise, the self-described couch potato jokes. It turned out exercise really is good for you. And those articles all came from the magazine titled Experience Life, which has a, an exclamation mark instead of an I in the word life. Thank you for tuning in to Soundbody today. Stay well. Please come back next week for more healthy living ideas.